worship, the topic of family worship. And so uh, Preston, John, and myself have divided up uh, basically six sessions on family worship. And so we're um, trusting that the Lord will work in that as we, uh, as we press on as a church. And so today, so really in the way it's laid out is basically a biblical theology of family worship, if you will. So uh, I'm going to be looking at a few passages in Genesis. And at the end of this, uh, we'll have gone through the historical books of the Pentateuch. We'll look at the wisdom books and uh, the Psalms and Proverbs. We'll also look at, New, at Old Testament narratives, the New Testament as well. So it'll be a, a whole sweep of what the scriptures say about family worship. So we're persuaded that, you know, that the building block of society is the family. And, and there is no other, there's no alternative to the building block of society. There's not, there's not another, you can't go somewhere else for another building block. Uh, and, and so... That's one of the one of the ideas behind the sobriety and the urgency of family worship. We also see that God has determined uh, to propagate the gospel primarily through families, and so that's an important idea. Now, I recognize there are we have some single folks here, some folks that uh, that aren't uh, perhaps even living geographically with a family or whatnot. And that uh, I would one of the things that we would want to encourage as a church body is this idea that families are yet important. Um, the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, reveal a kind of family plus, if you will, this idea that we've got others uh, that may not be you know, organically in the family that live with them and so forth. Uh, that isn't necessarily the only way to get what I'm referring to as family plus. But nonetheless, just simply this idea that, that I have a place to go where, where I can be a part of a family. And this is something that we would certainly encourage our single folks to pursue, and it would certainly be something that we would encourage our families uh, to pursue as well. There's a tremendous amount of enriching that certainly could occur uh, through this idea, but that is a story for another day. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis... Chapter 1, verse 28. Can anybody define the word culture? Anybody have a working definition of the word culture? Religion externalized. I have I have referenced Henry Van Til's book, and uh, very appreciative of that. So Cornelius Van Til, the famous apologist, had a nephew named Henry, uh, and he wrote a book on Calvin and culture, which is which is helpful. Um, yeah, okay, religion externalized. Um, so another. Individual, James Anderson has said, it's what we do with what God has made. What we do with what God has made. 
uh, I'm persuaded something like the grand purpose of mankind is to create godly cultures where the Lord has sovereignly placed them, beginning in the individual through conversion to Christ, then in the home community and the world. And so, you know, when we think about culture, the reality is, is all of us kind of grew up with a certain culture, and we can talk about this in sort of, you know, microscopic terms and macroscopic terms as well. But every home has a culture. There's a culture there. You might not have sort of been so intentional about setting the culture, but nonetheless, every home has a culture, right? Your home may have the culture of, I never get my school clothes dirty. And maybe, you know, all you heard growing up was, don't tear your school pants, right? Whatever, whatever you do. The culture of our home is, you've got two pairs of pants to wear to school, that's it. And so always there's this, don't tear your school pants. Or, or maybe you have a culture in your home. Uh, it may, unfortunately, reflect some of the reality, but nonetheless, where everything is measured by dollars, right? We don't have the money for that. This is very expensive. This is why we can't have nice things, whatever the case may be. This, this, sort, of, this sort of thing here, this culture, right, uh, that we have. And, you know, homes have cultures, states have cultures. You know, does Texas have a culture? Yeah, I mean, it hits you like a ton of bricks, right? I mean... Texas has a culture, right? Texas, you know, we could describe the ethos or the, you know, comprehensively excellent, right? Texas, right? Bold, big, powerful, oblivious to others. Some, there are some people that aren't actually aware that there are 49 other states. Uh, kind, friendly, productive, you know, these would be, this is sort of the culture, right? Of Te- we understand that, right? And so, Let's look at um, what is referred to often as the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. And we see this really first looked at here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The Bible says, And God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve. So we're referring to Adam and Eve here after the creation. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the idea here is that is that God has God has set Adam and Eve. Uh, this is a little bit of a trick question, okay? Did God set Adam and Eve into a perfect world? There was a sinless world. Okay, it was sinless. That was careful, Woody. <laughs> was it a perfect world? Was it a complete world? Uh, so, the work that Adam and Eve did, was it necessary? Yes. Right? Carrie says yes. That's right. Okay. It was it just optional. Hey, you know, if you guys have some spare moments while you're not watching the oak tree kind of acorn up and drop, you know, go ahead and take your hoe out to that place that's not watered and see what you can do. So the Lord dropped Adam and Eve into a perfect garden, right? A perfect garden that apparently had boundaries. 
right? Uh, boundaries that really, uh, if you will, marked off the garden and that which was ultimately to become a bigger garden, right? This idea. And this is, this is why this is called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. This idea that, that as we take all of Scripture, what we're understanding in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, is what, what did God mean when He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply? What did, he, what did He mean when He said, Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth? What did He mean by filling the earth and subduing it? What did He mean by that? And uh, you may recall early on in uh, the Lord's formation of Providence Reformed Baptist Church, we talked about, um, we, we talked about the Great Commission. And we talked about uh, this idea that the Great Commission was a mandate to plant churches. And I would draw your attention to this idea that as we look at the sweep of the Scriptures, we will come to this understanding that, that the Great Commission is, is nothing less than a republication of the Dominion Mandate. Right? It's nothing less than that. Uh, this idea that, that we will, through the means that God has given us, most simply uh, through families, we will... Invest ourselves in all that is around us and where it is that God has placed us such that we can bring about the renewal of this earth to that which reflects the beauty and the character of God. So this is, this is the idea in the dominion mandate. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that uh, and, and it's probably appropriate for us to think about this historically. So when we look back at Martin Luther... Martin, we could consider Martin Luther in many ways. Martin Luther was, a, was, a, was an absolute uh, redeemed genius. You know, it seems that some of the other reformers had areas of expertise, whereas Martin Luther enjoyed expertise in every area of the Reformation. He was a songwriter. He was a theologian. He was a great preacher, uh, and so forth and so on. But it's also important for us to recognize that Luther was a first-generation reformer. And because of that, there were some aspects of his theology that we can say perhaps were not really complete. And one of those areas would be the area of the dominion mandate, and that's why it would be very helpful for us to really acknowledge that John Calvin, who was a second-generation reformer, uh, really made much in this area of dominion and recognized this concept of God's sovereignty over all of life. So, and the idea... Uh, for instance, Henry Van Til would say that the gospel was to be proclaimed to every man, right? And Calvin helped us understand that the gospel was for the whole of every man. Every aspect of that man. What does he do on Monday, right? As well as what he does on Sunday. And so that's, that's the idea uh, that we see here with this concept of the cultural mandate. The culmination of the original mandate to expand the garden with its final earthly reiteration in the Great Commission. So Henry Van Til said this. He said, For the world is no longer a garden of God, but a place to work, an arena to struggle, a building terrain. The place to meet God is not in a secret spot where the romantically disposed soul practices religion as a province apart from God, but God's form is his work terrain, as big as the world. And it is our workshop, factory, and steaming oven, study or studio, every area where the man of God completely furnished unto every good work is faithfully 
fulfilling his divine calling. Now, there's going to be uh, likely a little bit of tension in your mind about perhaps the expansiveness of the dominion mandate. The reason I would say that is because historically there hasn't been complete agreement on this. For instance, uh, the Anabaptists really followed after Luther and they really entered into this what we have described actually as a two-kingdom theology. This idea that really uh, God's way and the world's way are running on parallel tracks and there's really not a lot of cross-pollination, if you will. Whereas, uh, whereas Calvin... Uh, really appropriately understood, uh, many Bible students as well as, you know, me, agree that, that with this idea uh, that the idea is that something that, that Abraham Kuyper said, that, that, you know, Jesus Christ owns every inch of the earth, and he claims it as his. And it really is through the cultural mandate, through the normal process of us expressing our vocations, whether that's a vocation of mother-father, it's a vocation of farmer, of worker, of whatever the case may be, we see these as spheres that are very much uh, impacted by the curse of sin and in places where we can come and, if you will, bring the sun in. Throw open the doors and show... Uh, what it is of the glory of God and how to do this. And this, this would be, uh, you know, by way of, of a worker being faithful, the integrity of, uh, of a salesman, um, by, you know, a mother uh, faithfully teaching her children, this sort of thing. This recognition of the great urgency, for instance, is something as simple as teaching your children and a recognition. So the question, and maybe we could ask ourselves this question, how many of you are raising... Or raising your, your sons to be the President of the United States. How many of you are raising your sons to be the President of the United States? I mean, somebody's got to be President. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't just happen, right? We're talking about setting goals, right, in which your son will be the President of the United States. How many of you are raising daughters uh, that will be uh, certainly in equivalent positions of influence? Right? This sort of thing. That will, that will speak truth well into maturing young man and young woman. This is the cultural mandate. We, rightly so, complain about uh, our leaders, about our politics, and so forth. But the cultural mandate is the answer to what is the Lord going to do about this, right? And the way the Lord works in that is, again, through the means of this cultural mandate, through family simply walking day by day faithfully, investing themselves in the future, this idea. Boaz got it. Boaz understood it. He understood that he was a kinsman redeemer not to pad his own wallet. He raised the grandfather of a king. Not only of any king, but the king. The physical king, David, and of course the physical and spiritual man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at, look at Boaz. Boaz is a great example. Boaz, if you read through Boaz and you have in the back of your mind the, the Tolkien's book, Fellowship of the Ring, the chapter on Tom Bombadil, 
you'll begin to see a little bit of a comparison there, I think. Bombadil was this mysterious guy who was pretty amazing. And Boaz, of course, is not fiction, but fact. So, anyway, dominion mandate. So here we look at Genesis one let Let's look at Genesis 2.15. Could somebody read that for us? Put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, so where's uh, where's Adam and Eve to be? Where are they at? What are they doing? Okay, they sinned and now they're working, right? No, wait, wait, what? Oh, it's before they. You mean work came out before they sinned? Okay, so they were they were slugging it out. They were they were not only inspired. But they were perspiring, right? Uh, even before sin, this idea, right? Bunyan talks about the sweating work of of our faith, right? This idea that they, they were... What were they doing? What do you think Adam and Eve were doing? Okay. Anybody out there planted a garden? Without a tractor? Hand tools? Right? Anybody done that? Yeah? What do you think? I love to get that dirt in my fingernails. You like that? It's hard work, isn't it? So Adam and Eve were out slugging it out. We know that the, the curse, what did that do to their work? Made it harder. Right. Now, you would think that many people are persuaded that the curse didn't only make their work harder, but actually it ended the mandate. Right? It's like, oh, well, the, this place is really messed up. So let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hide and trust in Jesus for the rest of my life. Right? But the dominion mandate didn't, didn't end. Right? The cultural mandate didn't end. We yet have before us this exhortation of the Lord. It really defines our lives, right? What it is that we're doing, right? So Genesis 2.15, there they are. They're, they're pressing into this that God has told them to do. Uh, 2.15 and 1.28 together. Could somebody read 3.15 for us? Genesis 3.15. All right, Genesis 3.15. What's happening here in Genesis 3.15? Okay, God's talking to the servant, to the serpent, an interesting, um, obviously, conversation here that we were let in on by the Word of God. What, what, what seems to be the, the real crux of the matter here? What does he promise? There's a promise made. Not only to him, obviously, not only to the serpent, obviously, but to us as well. What, there's a promise being made here. There really are two, right? Well, we could probably name more than that. But what, what, what sort of 
declarations are made by the sovereign God who will, in fact, make this all happen. Well, first of all, we have a promise to a person, meaning that this person has a special relationship to God. This is not just a promise in general. Okay. It's a specific promise. It's a specific promise. What is the main promise here? Promise of Christ, foretelling in Christ. So there's uh, there's enmity between who? That's right. We know things are going to be a little rough for man and woman, but that's not where the enmity is directed right now in Genesis 3.15, right? So, does it surprise us that Satan hates us, hates everything we do? Okay, he's working against the dominion mandate. He's got his own plans, right? He intends to take over the world as well. He sets before himself means, right? He's put enmity between, right, Satan and the people of God, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the head here, what is that a reference to? Christ is the head of man. And so he's talking there. About, it's, a, it's a prophecy. Okay. He shall bruise your head. Who's the he there? Pronouns important there? He. The seed of the woman. Okay. The seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, shall bruise the head. The head being the most important part. Right? So the idea there is that this one, he, the Messiah, the seed of man, the seed of man, the offspring, right, singular, not plural, will bruise the head. That is, he will destroy Satan, right? Whereas Satan will only bruise the heel, this idea that it's not a death blow. We understand there's two different things happening here, right? Now, so we have a promise of a future Messiah, one who will bring the end of all things. How will we get there? There's a few different options for this before you answer, right? So, Totally random, right? We get there in a totally random way. God just decides out of the blue to give Mary and Joseph a son. Name him Jesus and so forth. Uh, It's by chance and so forth. Or moment by moment, right? Day by day, the expansion of the garden imperfectly. Right. So what do you think? How, do, how are we going to get to the end of the book here from Genesis chapter 3? Long-term covenant faith. Okay. That's right. Just sticking with the uh, royal family here of, of uh, Mary and Joseph and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It, it came about... Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. In the verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall 
Well, if you had the New American Standard Version, the pronouns would be capitalized. But the ESV doesn't do that. Yeah. There are other versions that likely capitalize those pronouns, but the ESV just decided not to. That's a great question. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I really like the New American Standard as well. kind of helps. So... How, do we, how are we going to get there? How do we get to the Lord Jesus and to those that follow? Faithful family. Faithful husband, faithful wife. Right. Yeah, well, we'll you'll get other uh, iterations of this as the, the teaching goes here uh, for family worship, but it's... Uh, it's one family at a time, right? Let's look at uh, another family in the list here in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Yes. Is, is, is the idea that Eve needs to train up that seed to have this conflict in the future? Is that the idea? Well, she doesn't know. Right. generations until this person's going to come who just told her seed. That... Well, first of all, of course, it's you know not just for Eve, right? For Adam and Eve, yeah. right? But but so the idea is, you know, there's sort of an already not yet. There's partial fulfillment in this as well. But but I think, you know, I mean, you could look all the way to what may appear to be this final battle in the Book of Revelation, for instance, or in other places in Daniel. But the reality is, is that. We're talking about right right now, in the next moment, you know, this is, you know, as a matter of fact, they're already experiencing that, that curse, the difficulty. The serpent has already done much of his work with Adam and Eve, right? So, so this is, I mean, basically the Lord is putting them on notice. Hey, this is the way the world works. Uh, you, you've done this, and this is the result. I'm not leaving you helpless. Uh, and so day by day, you've got this... This incredibly annoying, almost debilitating sin working. You've got thorns and thistles growing. You've got strife between husband and wife. All this stuff is... That, I think that really would get at the heart of you know, this daily kind of battle. Does that make sense? Um, so, but then ultimately you do have an ultimate defeat you know, with the Lord Jesus Christ um, at the, in the consummation of all things. Any other... Questions about that? Think about Adam and Eve have been in a very real physical confrontation with Satan. Then they all leave the garden. That it's not a spiritual. We, we, we have not had that. Like they, they, they experienced a very, very real point blank situation. They would for sure be training their children in the ways of the Lord that they might stand against and repel what they do not. Sort of the next iteration of this idea is in Genesis chapter 9. So in Genesis 9, we've got uh, God's covenant with Noah here. We've um, already had the flood. There's recovery from the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. 
God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? So the same sort of idea. We see, again, this idea in in verse 7 of chapter 9. Be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, multiply in it. So, again, we're persuaded Adam and Eve were exhorted. Noah and his wife were exhorted to raise up God followers. Uh, And I mean, already, you know, uh, with Adam's children, you know, uh, Adam was killed. Seth was the the faithful one there. Uh, He he grew up. We see the same... uh, you know, challenges with, with Noah's children as well here. But nonetheless, the idea is the creation of culture, the, the exaltation of the things of God, of the ways of God, shown uh, very simply in a home day after day, week after week, as described in, Genesis, or rather in Deuteronomy 6, for instance, that we'll, we'll get to. Any, uh, any other questions at all? Any other comments um, on this, this dominion? mandate idea. Uh, no, I was not going to, and it's but you feel free to bring that up. Yeah, Tower of Babel. Uh, the, the, the sobriety, the expectation of this uh, expansiveness of the cultural mandate doesn't stop uh, with, with Noah when the people decide, no, we're just going to hole up in one place. We're going to stay here and build a tower for ourselves. They're rejecting this call to, to go and to fill the earth. And, and God frustrates their plans and, and to the point where I mean, that, that is where the scattering uh, really uh, takes place. Uh, there's a, a real seriousness to this. It's not just right here, mm-hmm. but it's also we're supposed to expand beyond wherever we're at to over there as well. That's good. Yeah. Um, Babel is a, a very important piece um, for a number of reasons, you know, this idea. And we see the same thing. You know, we've referenced this before with the church planting idea. I mean, you can plant, we've mentioned by way of Jerusalem or Antioch. Well, the folks in Jerusalem planted churches because they had to. (laughs) They were shoved out of Jerusalem because of persecution. The folks in Antioch planted churches because they wanted to. Uh, There's, you know, I mean, you could describe it in several different ways, but nonetheless, you know, the Lord had faithful churches as a result of that. And the Tower of Babel, it is this idea that you've got people conglomerating. Uh, They're not, you know, expanding the garden per se. They've created a city. Really, the purpose of the, the city of Babel, the Tower of Babel, was to do evil things, uh, to work against the Lord. And it also is a representation of technology that's gone bad. This idea that we use technology for good or for bad, uh, and the people in the Tower of Babel used it for very, very bad, wicked purposes. And so it's, a you know, of course, a note and highlight for us all. Thank you for bringing that up. Any other uh, additions or comments? Let me close with Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So, you may be aware that there really are five different great commissions stated in the Bible. Each one of the Gospels has a great commission. And the book of Acts also has a restatement of the great commission and 
as we said, we're persuaded that's, you know, a restatement of the dominion mandate. So the restoration of the kingdom will not only be the geographic contents of the boundaries of Israel at the time, but is to envelop the entire world. So the Lord Jesus, you know, was, was in the nation of Israel. He was crucified there. We see his ascension right here in Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they thinking? What do you think the... Uh, what do you, when they came together, what, what were they thinking? Restoring the kingdom to Israel. What, do you, what was in their minds, do you think? David's throne. Okay. They had in their minds the fixed boundaries of Israel, whether that was David's boundaries or Solomon's boundaries, or you know the, the biggest, the biggest we ever have been. When are you gonna When are you gonna take us back there? When are Are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay. Now, what does that reveal about the people asking the question? They don't have a spiritual goal in mind at this point. Okay. They don't have a spiritual goal? All right. This was kind of the, the whole manifestation of their expectation to bring in the kingdom. That was the extent of it. Yeah. It wasn't so much that it was wrong that it wasn't enough. Okay. Yeah. Very small, localized dominion. Okay. They had a... Yeah, that's it. I mean, they... Uh, They were earthbound, right? We know they didn't understand a whole lot. The, the rest of the New Testament helps us to... We, we learn with them, right? As we read through the Gospels in the New Testament, we learn with them about the, uh, the fullness of the Gospel and the truths of God as they all come together. But they had a very, very earthbound, very small understanding. Will you come and restore the nation of Israel? Well, let's see what the Lord Jesus, how he replied to that. Well, first of all, he said, verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yes. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Yeah, so... take lunch with you, but you got a big place you're going, and it's a long way away. And it's going to be year after year, generation after generation, the kingdom expanding. Sometimes Satan takes back some of that spiritual and physical land, right? And we reattack and so forth, and that's what the Lord Jesus said here. Let's pray.